Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Good morning, church. Our first reading comes from Matthew. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the, weed, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Our next reading comes from Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Y'all can take a seat. Thanks, Justin. Hey, hey. Good morning, Cornerstone. Great. Glad to be with y'all with that rousing response here. Uh, that's where, how it's going to be, okay. Um, I was thinking in preparation for this sermon, I've been at kind of a decision point when it comes to preaching to y'all as a relatively newer member of staff. It's this idea of how quickly do I let you know how weird I am. And I've been kind of laying out little pieces of it as I've been preaching stories about myself. You're probably building up an accurate image over time. And I think something that might be helpful for you to know about me is with my wife, Hannah, we close every day by doing the New York Times crossword puzzle for the day, which probably fits the persona that I've been cultivating here. And whenever I think about doing the New York Times puzzle, I love it because I love wordplay, but I also love it because I love at the conclusion of my day no matter what has gone on, good or bad, I have one thing that I can finish and complete and say, this is done, and I did it, and we're good. 
But when I was thinking about our passage for today, this Philippians text, there was one word that was jumping out in my mind in the sense of wordplay. And if any of y'all have done a crossword puzzle before, you may be familiar with if there's a question mark in the clue, it indicates that there's some kind of double meaning in what's being asked. So for example, if you were to see this word in a crossword clue, this word is minute, but we could also say it as minute, right? Small, diminutive, we. Or if we saw this word, we could say that this word is polished, but it could also be, right, okay. And so, and then this word, well, well we're in church, so this one is just Job. Um, no, but it could be Job or Job. And then this word, you don't have to say it out loud. I just want you to think about it. What comes into your mind when you see this word? If you were attentive during our scripture reading, you probably know the word that we ought to be thinking, which is content, to be satisfied, to be happy in something. But maybe when you're looking at this word, you're thinking content, like Netflix has a big catalog of content for me to browse through. And this word content, content was on my mind as I was reading through this passage because the question that kept coming up to me was, does the content that we consume increase our contentment or our restlessness? We're in an age where we are consuming more information, more media than we ever have before, and we are a more anxious, worried, bothered people than we've ever been before. What is going on with our relationship between content and contentment? And especially I'm thinking about Paul, who tells us that he's learned to be content in all circumstances, right? Verse 11 of Philippians chapter 4, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content. Whatever is the circumstance, whatever is going on, which makes me wonder, how can we have this contentment? And so that's what I'd like to spend our morning thinking about. And we're going to look at three pieces of the piece of the contentment that Paul is abiding in as he writes to the church at Philippi. We'll be thinking about the context of his contentment. We'll be thinking about the roots, the grounding of his contentment. And then we're going to see how he puts contentment into practice. But we're going to start from a place that may feel a little bit odd when we're thinking about the context of Paul's piece. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 22. And maybe that feels odd because the text from Matthew 22 had this moment about weeping and gnashing of teeth. Doesn't necessarily seem like the place free of anxiety. But I want us to think about this parable for a moment. So last week when John was preaching... He was preaching a similar message to the one that Jesus is bringing in Matthew chapter 22, that broadly speaking, evangelicalism has invited people to make a decision for salvation, a decision for Christ, and oftentimes that's viewed as a past-facing event, but we don't necessarily invite people into ongoing discipleship, learning how to obey all of Jesus' commands and teachings. And that's a deficient Christianity if we're not being invited into an ongoing discipleship. And Jesus is putting forward the same idea in Matthew chapter 22. This is the third of three parables in a row. So each of these three parables, he sets them up the same way, where you have an original audience who was invited into something. The original audience did not respond appropriately and so a new invitation goes out to a new group of people inviting them into the work that God is doing. And in the context of these parables, the thing that Jesus has in mind is that the Gentiles have been included in the family of God. He's grafting in new branches to his work. 
And so when we get to this third parable of three, we're expecting Jesus to just continue hammering home his point. But Jesus changes the conclusion of this parable that we just read. So we're expecting him to conclude the story where the wedding hall is full of guests, but instead he progresses on to say one is removed because he's not sufficiently dressed. And this is a moment where Jesus, it's like he's ending on a minor chord. We expect the melody to come to a resolution, and instead it doesn't, and it kind of gets stuck in our head. Jesus is wanting us to meditate on, why did I not bring this to the conclusion that you maybe thought he would? And the point that Jesus is making in Matthew 22 is that any of us can have our invitation revoked. It's not just the original group who was invited who squandered their invitation. We, the latecomers, can squander our invitation too. We can be a people who are found not worthy to participate in what is going on that Jesus is bringing. And Jesus uses this metaphor in his parable, this wedding garment, that speaks to our fitness to attend the wedding feast. And the wedding garment here, in terms of the cultural context, it's not a matter of wealth. It's not like this guy couldn't afford to have the right clothes and now he's in trouble for it. A wedding garment was essentially wearing clean clothing. Everybody should have been able to heed this instruction. For this guy to show up to the wedding feast inappropriately dressed is him communicating to his host, I don't need to do anything to receive your invitation. You just have to take me how I am. You just have to receive me. And the parable is in this interesting tension because Matthew tells us in 22.10 that the good and the bad are invited. And yet it seems like the good and bad, no matter where you were when you were invited, a response is expected from you. The way we could think about it is holding your acceptance letter to college is not the same thing as holding your diploma. There's a participation, there's an invitation in what Jesus is doing. I think what Jesus wants us to do is he wants us to take an inventory of our faith to ask, does my faith consist of both belief and repentance? That's John the Baptist's invitation, that's Jesus' invitation as they pronounce the kingdom, repent and believe, this two-part faith that is living and active. It's like one of those tubes of epoxy glue. Each one by themselves does nothing, but when they are combined, they form a concrete strength bond. Jesus is inviting us to consider, is my faith one that has both belief and repentance, a response to what he's done? And really, that's what I want us to see today, is many are called, few are chosen. Let's pray. I'm kidding. That would be a terrible way to finish my sermon. But that's the feeling that Jesus leaves us in. That's he leaves us on a cliffhanger in this sermon. He, he gives us this unresolved tension that basically invites us into thinking, oh my gosh, am I saved? I have a friend who calls these the doom spiral verses. Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit my kingdom. I'll say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. You read that and you think, oh my gosh, is that me? Which we ought to ask the question, what does Jesus hope to accomplish in telling us a parable like this? Is his goal to instill in each one of us an existential dread, wondering, am I going to be found worthy on the last day? I think Jesus does want us to take a serious inventory, but I don't think his goal is to push us into existential dread, and that's why I want us looking at the peace of Paul. Paul is somebody who has internalized the message of the gospel. He's instructing others on how to live in response to it, and he is marked by a contentment and a peace, not by a chronic anxiety. Paul is the one, he's generated more Instagram bios than anybody else in Philippians 4.13. He says, 
I can do all this through him who gives me strength. But the irony of what Paul is writing here is Paul is writing this from a prison, a prison in the Roman Empire, which is not a nice place to be. When Paul is expressing that he can do all things, what he is putting before the church at Philippi is that he has learned how to suffer well. He's learned how to be content even in the midst of his suffering. And so the context in which Paul is experiencing peace is the context of suffering. For Paul, he's not wrestling with, am I going to be found in the right wedding garment? Is my faith going to be found as one that is legitimate? Because he sees his suffering as a test of whether or not his faith is legitimate. The fact that he's suffering means that he is participating with Jesus in a legitimate way. He's taken on a costly faith. So he can rest in that. And this is a theme that pervades his letter. So in Philippians chapter 1, he addresses the church at Philippi, verse 29, he says, For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, the gift of faith, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here I still have. So Paul is telling the church at Philippi, hey, the suffering you're undergoing, that's a gift from God. Because the suffering you're undergoing is a clear sign that you are participating in the legitimate work of Jesus. Or the way he says it in chapter 3, verse 10, he says it, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul is thinking about participating in Jesus' suffering, the laying down of his life so that others might benefit as the sign of authenticity of his faith, which gives him peace, which means he doesn't need to worry about whether or not he will be found in Jesus. He's responding appropriately to the invitation. And so when we're thinking about contentment, when we're thinking about peace, the first thing I want us to see is the context in which we experience peace, ironically, is a context of suffering, of taking up a cross, of living a costly faith. That is the place that our peace is rooted in. And Paul, he continues on, oh, yes, the context of Paul's peace. He's in the family business. It's a sign. He's doing Jesus' work. The next thing, though, we see, it's kind of hard to pick up on when we're in Philippians chapter 4. I'd like you to open your Bibles and turn there if you want to get out your pew Bible. Are the roots of Paul's peace. And the reason it's hard to see is because what Paul is doing at the close of his letters, he's giving a scattershot series of instructions. It's often how an epistle ends. It's a line item of do these things. And mixed into the series of instructions, we see the grounding, we see the rooting in which Paul is experiencing his faith. So I want to go through some of these things. The first one is in verse 5. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. This phrase, the Lord is near, is a grounds in which Paul is experiencing peace in his ministry. For Paul to say the Lord is near is looking forward to the imminent return of Jesus, who will return to usher in the end of all things and renew all creation. And what's significant about this verse, especially in light of Matthew 22, is we could read the Lord is near as almost a threat. You better shape up because he's coming back. And maybe we could hear it that way if we're thinking about the one wedding guest who was removed because he was inappropriately clothed. 
But if we think about the other side of the coin, think about all the people who are at this wedding who are not removed because they are found clothed in Christ's righteousness. For them, it's a celebration. For them, it's an opportunity of rejoicing. This banquet that will happen at the end of all things is when God will make all sad things come untrue. He'll wipe every tear from our eyes. He'll swallow up death itself. So for Paul to be pointing to the nearness of Jesus, the imminence of his return, what he's trying to get us to see is you have opportunity to rejoice because Jesus will return and that's good news in the context of your suffering. You can persevere a little longer because Jesus will come back. It's a grounds for his peace. The second ground that Paul gives here is in verse 7. He says, The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's the operative phrase for him, that he's in Christ. Or the way he says it in verse 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. The language that Paul is using in these phrases is participatory language. And the doctrine we use to describe participation in Jesus is something called union with Christ. Union with Christ, though, it's a really robust doctrine. It ought to bring us peace, but I think that we can become too metaphorical too quickly when we think about what it means for me to be in Jesus. What does it mean for me to be in Jesus? Like Romans 6 would say that I've been united with him in his death as I've been dipped into the water in baptism and then raised out into newness of life. It's not just a metaphor, though. It's actually a reality. And I want to break it down for a moment here because I think it's important to us experiencing ongoing peace. When I say that you are in Christ... What I mean is the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you, and God the Son sits at the right hand of the Father in full humanity and full divinity, interceding for you. And as you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you are having a direct link to Jesus who has sent the Spirit, his helper, his counselor to us. We are joined to Jesus directly in his humanity, and he is joined directly in his divinity which means that he becomes a source for life and godliness in all that we need. In a real way, not just in a metaphorical way, not just Paul is making a nice symbolic point about baptism, we are in him and everything that is true of Jesus is true of us. We're empowered to live in a new way because of a metaphysical reality that exists in us. If that was just a word salad that meant nothing to you, this quote may help us. This is Thomas Torrance. He says, He identified himself with us, he being Christ, made himself one with us, and on that ground claims us as his own, lays hold of us, and assumes us into union and communion with him, so that as church, we find our essential being and life not in ourselves, but in him alone. And what I think is really significant about this doctrine is what it means is life as a Christian, is not lived in response to Jesus, it's lived in Jesus. Which is to say, it's not just a decision I've made and now I, off by myself, am doing whatever I think is right. I cannot live as a Christian unless I am in him. The things I've been asked to do, the way that I am hoping to be transformed, cannot happen unless I remain in him and him in me, unless I abide in him. And Paul views this as a grounds for peace. His anxiety is stilled because he sees he is in Jesus, so whatever is before him, he will be found sufficient. 
The next ground, the next route that Paul puts forward for his peace is in verse 9. He says, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. And there's a subtle distinction here. So Paul, just a moment ago, he was pointing out that the Lord is near, that Jesus will return, he will come back. Paul is actually pointing out something different here, that God will be with us. What Paul is referring to in this moment is that we, as the church, as we are indwelt by Christ, as we live our life in Christ, empowered by his spirit as one body, as we minister to each other, God's presence is with us in a real way. And this is something that we experience all the time. I was experiencing it this morning during worship, looking around this room and seeing people lift up praise to God. Some people in life situations where in a worldly sense, I know they have cause to not be praising God. Where I could imagine that they would have some bitterness or some resentment or some difficulty worshiping, and yet I see them participating in corporate worship, and it's a ministration to me that they are participating in Christ, in this worship. And what we see is when we fulfill our function as members of the body, we minister God's presence to each other. He's with us. And all of these things form a bedrock of peace for Paul. So what we see is the roots of Paul's peace are through his participation in Christ. So we have the context for peace. Paul is suffering, and that's grounds for his legitimacy. He's in the family business. We have the grounding of his peace, that he's participating in the life of Jesus. But then Paul tells us how to put our peace into practice. And that's what I want to spend some time looking at here in chapter 4. Paul is instructing us how to live. The Christian life is not just a series of doctrinal propositions that we say yes to. It's a life that we are invited into living. It's a way of putting on this wedding garment. We see this first in 4.4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And this verse makes me laugh a little bit, uh, in part because if we go back in the letter to 3.1, he says, further, my brothers and sisters, or other translations read here, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. And what makes me laugh here is that Paul in 3.1 says, finally, I'm summing this up, and then he goes on to write for two more chapters which gives me some comfort as a preacher who sometimes says finally like 10 minutes too early in my sermon. But the second thing that makes me laugh, but it also gives me comfort, is that he says, I'm not bothered to be writing the same instruction to you. And he shows us. He writes it in chapter 3. He writes it in chapter 4. He writes it even earlier in chapter 1. I have no burden in repeating myself to you. And that's a comfort to me as a preacher because sometimes I get self-conscious I just said this last week. They just heard this last week. And I feel like I need to come up with new things to keep people interested. But Paul is saying it's not a burden to me to continue to instruct you in the same things. In fact, you need to hear it. I need to hear it. We need to hear it over and over again. And in some ways, this is job security for me. But more than that, it's a correction to the sinful patterns that are in our hearts that we need to be reminded over and over again. And so this thing that Paul is reminding us is he says, rejoice, which kind of feels like a strange commandment. It makes me wonder, can you command somebody else to rejoice? Like I get an image of a dad on vacation with his family. He's in the car and he turns around from the steering wheel and he says, we paid a lot of money for this trip. You kids are going to have fun or so help me. I'll turn this car around. Is that Paul's attitude here towards the church at Philippi? 
Like, you better rejoice. You know Jesus died for you. I don't think so. I think he's inviting us into something. And if we think about Jesus in the parable of the sower, he's talking about how the word is going out in order to bear fruit in these fields of our hearts and how we, in some cases, see thorns and thistles rise up in the field, choking out the fruit that would be. And these thorns and thistles represent the care for the world and the love of money. And so if we're thinking about rejoicing, we can actually think about this as a proactive strategy to weeding the garden of our heart. So you can just, when you see a weed, pick it. Or if you have a field that's lying fallow, you can plant ground cover so nothing else can grow there. And when Paul is telling the church, rejoice, make a proactive practice of rejoicing, what he's saying is, you should seed the ground of your heart with rejoicing towards the Lord, cover it with flowers so that there's no room for thorns and thistles to grow up in the first place. Make a practice of naming to God those things that he's done for you. Become an expert in all the ways that he's been good to you. And if you wanted to put this into practice, you could make a daily habit of at the end of every day, choosing three things and naming them to the Lord in prayer to say thank you to him. And if you were to cultivate this as a practice, there would be much less room in your life for anxiety because you would begin to see all that God has given to you. How would he withhold any good thing from those who he's given his son to? So this is a practice we can take on. We can rejoice. The next practice Paul gives us is in verse 6. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Which is another one where it's like, can you just tell somebody to not be anxious? Wow, I've never thought of that before. Thanks so much. I'll just not be anxious anymore. Doesn't seem like very effective advice, but Paul is not just talking about the emotional state we experience. He's giving us a practice that we can do when we feel ourselves tempted towards anxiety. Don't be anxious. Instead, pray. And the reason prayer combats anxiety, the reason it draws us towards peace, is prayer, by its very nature, when we approach God, is reminding us of the context that we find ourselves in. So Paul, in his suffering, is drawn to pray. And it's a reminder, the fact that I need to pray right now, the fact that I'm enduring something where I need to go to God, is evidence that I am participating in him. I'm living in response to the invitation that he has given me in a way that takes the invitation seriously. And I think it's important to say, when I'm talking about suffering for the sake of the gospel, that does not always mean some sort of grand act of martyrdom. Not all of us will be imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, but all of us have the opportunity to suffer legitimately for the sake of the gospel. To lay down our preferences in order that others might have fuller life. And anytime we find ourselves in a situation where we feel called to lay down our preferences in the service of another, imitating Jesus, that's an opportunity for us to go to God in prayer and to remember that the fact that I need to pray right now is evidence that I'm participating in Christ. Further, the act of prayer itself, before our prayers are even answered, they are a reminder to us that we are in Christ, that I have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me, interceding with groanings too deep for words, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for me even now. Every act of prayer is an opportunity to rehearse to ourselves that we are cared for by God. It's an opportunity for us to undertake peace. So he says, rejoice. He says, pray. And then in verse 8, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, 
whatever is noble, whatever is right, pure, lovely, admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Fix your mind on the right things. And back to the beginning of the sermon, this idea of content versus contentment. This is the thing that's been most on my mind. Because we consume a lot of content. How can we begin to obey Paul's instructions of fixing our minds on the right things if we are constantly consuming things? It's difficult to. And some of you may be thinking that I'm talking about social media in this moment, which is true. Social media sure pushes a lot of stuff at us, but it's bigger than that. I remember reading a statistic a few years ago that the Sunday edition of the New York Times contains more information in it than your average person would have ever come across in their lifetime in the 1700s. We are inundated, deluged with information all the time. We constantly have noise on. We're listening to podcasts and music. We're watching shows. We need to begin from a posture of curating what is going into us if we are ever going to obey Paul's instruction to fix our mind on things that are worthy on things that are good, that are excellent, and begin building habits towards how can I root myself in reminding myself of those things over and over again. Paul has one final practice he asks us to put into place. So he says, rejoice, pray, fix your mind on the things that are good. And then in verse 9, he says, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul is telling us, Imitate the people who taught you your faith. And one thing that's really significant about this is it's further confirmation that Christianity is not just a doctrine. It is something to be imitated. It's something to be passed down. It's something to be put into practice. And as intimidating as it is that Paul can say to this congregation, imitate me. I'm confident that I'm following Jesus. Imitate me. It ought to be a reminder to us that our faith is incomplete unless we are seeking to put it into practice. Otherwise, Paul would not be saying that. He'd say, remember the creeds that I taught you or remember that thing that I told you to memorize. Again, not to denigrate those, but to say our faith must be brought into practice. And in this, I think it's important to say, in no part of this do I mean to advocate that we are earning salvation for ourselves. The Christian life is a life of doing, but it's not a life of earning. And there's a subtle distinction there, but there's an important distinction there. A true Christian life is participatory. It's active. We are participating in Jesus, and yet we're not earning anything. We're participating in what he has freely given to us. Of one more verse, that's not true. I have two more verses that I want to put before you that don't fit neatly into my framework here. So humor me for a second. Verse 11, Paul says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And to me, this begs this question of how. How have you learned this? Because we saw, okay, so he's, the context is suffering, the root is participation, he's putting his faith into practice, but practically, how did you learn this? And the answer is seen in Paul's life. He learned it because God has brought him through any and every circumstance, and in all of those things, he has learned how to be content. Paul's faith is the school of hard knocks. And what that means for us is if we want to learn to be content in all circumstances, We too have to be ready that God would bring us through a variety of things that we would learn what it is to remain content in him regardless of where we find ourselves. Which is a hard thing to deliver. I wish I could tell us that it's all just going to be sunshine and rainbows, 
until Jesus returns, but Paul is an example for us. He's telling us, I've learned these things because God has led me through these things, and yet he doesn't express anxiety about them. He's learned to practice peace. And Paul adds to this thought in verse 11 and verse 12, something that I think we ought to be mindful of. He says that he's learned contentment, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And I think it would be easy for anyone in this room to see the necessity of contentment in a season of need, in a season of lack. But it strikes me that Paul points out there's a danger in need and learning to be content, and there's a danger in plenty in learning to be content. And when I look around this room, chances are more of us are faced with circumstances in which we have plenty rather than need. And I want Paul's warning to be instructive to us because if you are somebody who has abundance in life in a general sense, how easy it is for you to be somebody who does not experience the context of suffering. How easy it may be to not need to participate in Jesus, going to him in prayer, because life is together for you. Life is polished for you. Life is nice for you. And with Paul, we ought to be looking for opportunities for legitimate suffering for the sake of the gospel that we may find that our faith is in fact legitimate, real. And in that, I'm not saying let's seek out suffering for suffering's sake. I'm saying we ought to take an inventory in the spirit of Matthew's parable in chapter 22 of is my faith living and active? Paul seems to think that abundance can be a danger in and of itself. So to close us out, I'm telling you something that you already know. We are living in a moment uniquely marked by anxiety in our society. And it doesn't seem like the amount of content we're consuming is changing or fixing that anxiety. But it's interesting to me, study after study is coming out talking about anxiety in teens, anxiety in young adults, rates of depression. These studies often point towards techniques like differentiation or detachment or setting boundaries, which are not bad things. They're useful tools. I think we ought to use them where we should. But what's interesting to me is where society is pushing us to say, hey, draw these lines in the sand so that you don't have your emotional self trampled or people don't ask too much of you. Paul seems more focused on freeing ourselves from anxiety, not for our own benefit, but so that we would be willing to adopt the posture of Jesus towards other people. When I know that I can be content in all circumstances, I'm willing to take up my cross in service of another person. I'm willing to view my suffering as a sign of my legitimate participation in God's kingdom. I see this rooting in participation in Christ, and I can put my peace into practice. And so if I could encourage you towards something, it would be asking yourself, how can I put myself in a participative place that legitimately needs Jesus, that legitimately needs to rely on him, the fact that I'm in him, that I can draw from his strength, and in that be comforted to know he is sufficient, he will provide all that I need. So friends, the, the invitation that's before us today is that we can experience the joy and freedom of contentment and peace like Paul is by suffering, by imitating Jesus. And we can experience contentment and peace in making a practice of it in response to the invitation we've received. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. 
Jesus Christ, we thank you that you humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we might be redeemed and renewed as your people. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you indwell your church, that you mediate the presence of God here and now. God, we want to be a people of peace. We want it for ourselves individually. We want it for our world. God, in our 24-7 news cycle, we are all too familiar with the many places in which we need peace. God, would you bring it? Would you bring it in Israel? Would you bring it in all the areas of the world that are torn by war, that are experiencing tumult and turmoil? God, we ask that your church would be a unique presence of peace to the world. Not that we would distance ourselves from the suffering that's around us, but instead, through this sufficiency that Christ provides, we would draw near to those who have need, and in that, we would be satisfied and our anxieties would be soothed knowing that we are legitimately participating in you, Jesus. And Jesus, I pray that as we get ready to take this communion meal, that your body and your blood would be made real to us. They would be made sufficient to us as the things that will nourish us as we seek to go about obeying your commands. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.